0: Um, So welcome, everybody. My name is Rosemary Kalanick. Uh, I'm a professor here at Notre Dame in the Political Science Department, and this is the Notre Dame International Security Center uh, workshop series. Uh, Today we have Essen Butt from George Mason University, presenting a paper called Why Did the US Invade Iraq in 2003? Which I think we can all agree is a pretty important question with only befuddling answers thus far. Um, he is the associate professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason. He's the author of a 2017 book, Secession and Security, explaining state strategy against separatists. Um, he did his BA at Ohio Wesleyan and his master's degree and PhD at Chicago. So he is one of the mafia uh, that, that are here. So you are also a mafioso. Um, before we get started on Essen's Talk, I'd like to make a couple of announcements. So we have this NDISC email sign-up sheet. Um, if you signed up before, you don't need to sign up again. But if you'd like to get our emails that have... Um, links to the papers that are being presented, and just notices about various events that we have, please do sign up. So I'm gonna send that around. Um, Our next talk uh, is Jill Hazelton from the U.S. Naval War College, No Little War, Beliefs in Liberal Military Intervention. And I am now blanking on the date. Do you know the date off the
1: top of your head? the
0: 30th? The 30th of October, okay. Well, stay posted. It's after, it's after fall break, obviously. Um, okay, so rules of the road, since this is especially, or particularly because this is only our second session thus far this year, um, I'll keep a list of people who want to ask questions of the speaker um, so that I can sort of keep track and he can focus on answering questions. Um, your questions, your answers should be phrased as a question right, <laughs> to, to borrow Alex Terbeck's phrase. So please do actually ask questions rather than just make comments. Um, we have a two finger rule. Uh, we can laugh about you know, holding up various fingers, but the two finger rule is when you have a comment or question that's directly on the topic currently being discussed. And so if you hold up two fingers, that allows you to skip the queue and speak on the particular issue being discussed. Now, if you abuse the two finger rule, um, I will shun you and and put you at the end of the list for sort of other comments in the future during this session. Okay, great. So without further ado, um, I'd like to welcome Essan Butt and hear what he has to say.
2: All right. Thank you, guys, for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Mike Desh and Rose for having me. Um, And I'm really surprised, pleasantly surprised at the turnout. The title of my talk today is Why Did the United States Invade Iraq in 2003? And this is a talk based on a forthcoming article of mine. Um, The reason I wrote this paper is because I don't think international relations or security studies as fields of inquiry have done a really good job of explaining why the Bush administration uh, invaded Iraq. I think we know a good amount about this war and the aftermath of the war and things like the surge and counterinsurgency and insurgency, but I don't think we actually know why it was fought. Um, in the paper, I outlined three sort of conventional wisdom arguments uh, that purportedly explain what the Bush administration was thinking. Um, I'm not going to deal with each of the three for reasons of time. In this paper, I'm going to in this talk, I'm going to focus, focus on the w, WMD argument. But there are other arguments that say the Bush administration was invading Iraq to spread democracy, which I think is wrong, or to satisfy the oil or Israel lobbies, which I also think is wrong. Uh, but okay, let's talk about the WMD argument. Uh, the WMD argument basically says that the Bush administration invaded Iraq for exactly the reasons that they said they invaded Iraq. Uh, The idea that Saddam Hussein either has nuclear weapons today or is in the process of developing nuclear weapons for tomorrow which will shift the balance of power irrevocably against the United States and this leads to a commitment problem which leads to the US invading Iraq. And there is an article in International Organization which many of you already know, for those of you who don't know, this is the premier journal in international relations And in that journal, two uh, scholars uh, called Alex Debs and Nuno Montero uh, say the main U.S. motivation for the war was to prevent suspected Iraqi nuclearization. So the idea here is that if there were exaggerations and mistruths about the WMD program that Saddam Hussein purportedly had, uh, that those were sincere mistakes that anyone could have made uh, and that there were a lot of shades of grey in the WMD evidence and anyone could have been wrong about them and the war was reasonably justified from a rationalist perspective. Um, I think this argument is wrong uh, for a couple of reasons. The first is basically, the published version of this argument uh, have no evidence in support of it other than the Bush administration's own claims, right? So the Bush Bush administration, we now know was engaged, and we knew then, many of us knew then, uh, was engaged in a propagandistic effort to inflate the threat posed by Saddam to justify the war. So it's very strange to use those words, which are widely acknowledged as propagandistic, as evidence for these theoretical arguments that nuclear weapons were causing this war, right? Um, the Bush administration, people in the administration have been reasonably, uh, not that open, but reasonably open that, You know, people like Doug Feith, even Paul Wolfowitz mentioned something like this. The idea that, you know, the rationale for the war didn't hinge on the details of the intelligence, even though the intelligence is what we use to sell the war, right? So in other words, the Debs and Montero argument is not really dealing with the fact that um, just because the Bush administration said that's why they fought doesn't mean that's actually why they fought. Maybe they were lying, right? In fact, they were lying. All right. The second issue is that... um, the, the 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 theory of this war, the, th- the theoretical logic that people like Debs and Montero forward, is that there were shades of gray in this intelligence uh, in 2001, and 2002, and given the threat post 9/11, uh, that U.S. decision makers could not afford. This is the Cheney 1% doctrine, right? That U.S. decision makers could not afford uh, to take that threat lightly, right? And so, even if there were shades of gray, uh, reasonable people could sort of see that reasonable people could see shades of gray differently. And as a result of these sort of uncertainty of Saddam's present capabilities and certainly uncertainty of Saddam's future capabilities, uh, that led to the war. Uh, I think this is, again, sort of problematic, uh, mainly because uh, in 2001 and early 2002, the US intelligence community was was not giving you shades of gray on Saddam. It was actually fairly black and white. Uh, Saddam Hussein was not considered even one of the top five threats. Uh, by intelligence agencies for, to, to the United States. And basically, I think it's much, much like much more likely that a decision for war made for other reasons led to this black and white intelligence, reasonably black and white intelligence becoming gray thanks to politicization, right? Thanks to the Office of Special Plans that people like Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld set up in the White House, uh, thanks to the basically weekly visits that Dick Cheney and Scooter Libby made to Langley. Um, And when you pressure uh, intelligence agencies to produce particular outcomes, uh, they will do that. We are all good bureaucrats, and uh, we all wanna do what our bosses want us to do. and We all wanna keep our jobs. And so if you're facing pressure to say certain things, you're gonna say them, right? So in my argument, it's much more likely that the decision for war led to the muddying of intelligence rather than muddy intelligence leading to war. Finally, I think there's a pretty significant problem with the WMD argument, and I call this the taking yes for an answer problem. The taking yes for an answer problem is that, essentially, the Bush administration never sought disarmament absent war, right? So there's disarmament and then there's disarmament through war. Um, And the point is that if you absorb sort of the Jim Fearon rationalist rationalist sort of framework of war, the idea is that you can get the same things that you do fighting that you get from not fighting, right? And it's sort of war is irrational in that sense. And so, if the idea is that you're trying to reduce uncertainty of Saddam's future capabilities, there's a couple of ways you can do that. You can do regime change, uh, or you can actually find out what's going on, like you can reduce uncertainty in peaceful ways. Uh, But the Bush administration invents zero interest in peaceful measures of uncertainty reduction, primarily the IAE inspections that started in November 2002. And we know that this was a concern not just for people in the IAEA, who I've spoken to in this paper, and who basically rubbish the idea that uh, WMD was the reason for this war, and I think they would know. Um, But even within the Bush administration, people pushed back against this. So uh, Colin Powell, in uh, in a private uh, conversation with Bush in August, is trying to talk him down. And he's saying, look, if you take it to the UN, you've got to recognize that they might be able to solve it. Solve what? Solve the issue of uncertainty, right? in which case there's no war. That could mean a solution that is not as clean as just going in and taking the guy out. I think this quote is very revealing because it shows you that Powell is concerned that the the principles in the Bush administration, of which he was not one, the principles in the Bush administration are attracted to a so-called clean solution, which is regime change, rather than the actual solution to the problem, which is uncertainty reduction. This could mean a solution that is not as clean as going in and taking the guy out. They want a clean solution. They don't really want to reduce uncertainty per se. So I think, yes, it's plausible, it's conceivable that WMD actually caused this war but right now we have zero evidence for this claim. All we have is the Bush administration's own words and I don't think that's enough for scholars. Uh, I think we should be slightly more skeptical of state <coughs> leaders and their justifications and rationalizations. Okay, so if it wasn't WMD and if it wasn't democracy and it wasn't the oil or Israel lobbies, what was it? In this, the rest of my time today I'm going to be outlining, outlining what I call the performative war thesis. The performative war thesis rests on a couple of concepts. One is this issue of status. Uh, status and its associated cousin reputation are relational concepts. They're social concepts. They're essentially intersubjective. They exist in the minds of actors, social minds. And the idea here is that you know status is what other people think about me, and reputation is what other people think other people think about me, right? Um, Now, status and reputation are important concepts for all social actors, for all states, but they're especially important for hierarchic states. The way to distinguish between the IR concepts of hierarchy and hegemony is that hierarchy rests on some social recognition, some level of deference, some level of authority, recognized authority. Uh, And some of that authority, not all of it, but some of that authority and deference rests on the idea of status, that this is a hegemonic state that in some sense deserves its position and we recognize that. So, for hegemonic states, it's very, very important to have other states in the system respect them in those terms, that this is the hegemon uh, that we will respect, so on. Okay. Now, sometimes, not just for hegemonic states, any state or any social actor, uh, be it an individual, a firm, organization, state, whatever, can experience status anxiety. Status anxiety is when there's a mismatch between the statuses, the status a state thinks it deserves and should have versus the status it actually currently has. Right? And for hegemonic states, uh, this status anxiety can generate a need to show how strong and how tough and how hegemonic you actually are. Right? Once you show that you're the boss, once you show you're not to be messed with, once you show that you're a prestigious actor, uh, the big bad boy of international politics, then everybody else falls in line. The idea is that you can establish a quote unquote order. Now when I say order, I just, there's been a lot of conversation in recent in recent times about sort of the liberal order and what does it mean to be liberal international order. No, I just say order here. I'm not saying liberal order and I'm not saying international order, I'm not saying liberal international order, I'm just saying order. Right? The idea that there's a bunch of states are just going to fall in line do what we say, once we show how strong and tough and prestigious and not to be messed with that we really are. Okay, now one way to show how strong and tough uh, you are and to establish a new order and the terms of a new order is by fighting. Uh, this is known to political theorists for many, many decades and centuries. Uh, you know, Arendt ref- references Cain and Abel right, and says, you know, uh, you can't make a beginning without using violence, right? Any any new order, any new system uh, requires you to be violent and set the terms uh, in sort of unambiguous ways. Machiavelli, you know, very similar logic as you might expect. That if you're trying to be a new prince and set up set up shop, you want to make sure that Uh, uh, you've destroyed all vestiges of the old system and everybody knows that the new system is due to you. And this has been a lesson imbibed by IR scholars for for decades. It's been about 40 years since Robert Gilpin wrote his classic work which essentially said that status and prestige, uh, the primary way to gain status and prestige in international politics by fighting and winning wars, showing everyone you're strong and tough and you can't be messed with. Uh, And the idea that states fight to establish particular reputations, to establish credibility, to show how tough they are, to show how strong they are. This is something that's widely accepted in international relations scholarship. And in fact, has been a reasonably fruitful area of inquiry in the last couple of decades, uh, especially after humiliating events, right? especially after you sort of feel like you really need to go back out there and, and set the terms, uh, reset terms. Uh, an important point here is that if you're fighting such a war to s- To show how tough and strong you are, Uh, there is no peaceful bargain available short of war. Um, So, the classic Jim Fearon rationalist frameworks, rationalist causes of war framework, says that for any war, essentially, there is always an alternative peaceful bargain available. And it's a sort of mistake. It's not that wars are accidents, but it's a mistake that states don't reach those bargains, right? The commitment problem, information problem, or issue indivisibility stops states from fighting those bargains, but those bargains are available, it's just that states can't reach them. Right? My point here is that those bargains are not available. The reason is because Fairon believes anything you can win in war, you can also win in peace. Right? And my point is, there are certain tough. the idea of a tough reputation can only be won in war. Right? No matter how lopsided a peaceful bargain is right it is not going to give you the same benefits of you know this actor is really tough and not to be messed with uh, that a war actual fighting will do right so in some cases not in all but in some cases if wars are being fought for these reasons, the war is unavoidable okay and this is going to matter uh, in a few minutes okay now importantly for this thesis or encouragingly for this thesis we know that similar contexts in social life right places where there's An anarchical environment, places where there's an uncertainty of intentions, where violence is part and parcel of sort of discourse and interaction, um, such as prisons or uh, drug wars with cartels and gangs, obey very similar principles. A lot of times, uh, violence in these contexts is not because there's something at dispute, but because the actor involved wants to show how strong and tough they are. Uh, So, this should be encouraging for the theoretical framework. Okay, so, can this argument, the idea that sometimes states fight wars as a performance to show how strong and tough they are, to establish the terms of a new order, to show that they're the big bad hegemon not to be messed with, can this argument explain the Bush administration's run-up to the Iraq war? I argue that it can, much better than the WMD argument at least. Uh, And I basically make three points in the paper. I rely on three, there's basically three dimensions here of the argument. One is that there was a need for a new beginning. The second is that reputation, status, and credibility were repeatedly referred to in private. This is a key point, in private, by the principals. Never in public, in private. Uh, And finally, there was basically zero attempt at a peaceful bargain, which is very important when we're trying to distinguish between my argument and the WMD argument. Okay, so let's deal with each of these three in step. All right, so obviously 9-11 was a really big deal. uh, But we wanna understand, for the purposes of this paper, why was it such a big deal? Well, first of all, who attacked the U.S.? It wasn't you know, a big, powerful state rival. It wasn't China or Russia. It was, uh, according to LIBO 2009, a ragtag cabal of Middle Eastern terrorists. Right? In colloquial discourse in America, I think they're called towel heads. Right? You have 19 towel heads destroying the symbols of American power. Right? The Pentagon and the World Trade Center. And it's not just what they're destroying, it's when they're destroying it. Right? One decade into the unipolar moment and the end of history. 1990s were basically a time of unprecedented peace and prestige for the U.S. Uh, peace and prosperity, I should say, for the, for the U.S. Very, very secure. Uh, basically king of the hill. No challenges, no real challenges, from states at least. Uh, to, the extent they were, uh, to the extent that there were other great powers in the system, such as Germany and Japan, they were bandwagoning with the U.S., not balancing the U.S. So this was like basically the best time in, geopolitically in America's history, really. Uh, and all of that is smashed on a Tuesday morning. In September September 2001, Uh, and all of this leads to a great amount of fear uh, amongst the masses, amongst the body politic, amongst political elites. Um, Polling suggests this. Editorials (coughs) in major newspapers, right? America is vulnerable for the first time. That that sense of impregnability, that sense of we are the hegemon and no one can be, no one can mess with us, right, is totally sort of smashed post September 11th, uh, which may lead to a desire to uh, show that the U.S. is in fact invulnerable, is in fact the hegemon, and you should not in fact mess with it. This is why George Bush, when he's talking to Bob Woodward, is saying, you know, Iraq is about, I'm going to seize the opportunity to achieve big goals. Tony Blair writes uh, one week into the war to George Bush and says, this is the moment when you can define international politics for the next generation. The true post-Cold War world order. These are not small aims. This is not a, this is not a WMD argument. Right? These are not small fry aims. Right? They are trying to remake the world's political map. Now, it's important to note here, Like one obvious question might be, well, you know, 9-11 happens, and the US goes into Afghanistan and wins a pretty quick and decisive victory, at least at first glance, uh, against the Taliban. And so somebody might say, well, you know, wasn't Afghanistan enough to establish this big fearsome tough reputation? Absolutely not. A couple of reasons. Number one, Afghanistan was a merely, merely retaliatory tit for tat war, right? And as any, if you want to try to send a message of unbridled hegemony, right, Mexican drug cartels know this very well, right? If you're trying to send a message that you're the boss, a tit for tat response is not good enough. You have to go above and beyond, you have to escalate, it has to be disproportionate, right? Tit for tat is not what hegemons do. That's one issue. The second issue is Afghanistan is just a very weak state. Right? Uh, and because it's weak, I mean, think about the prison analogy that I raised earlier. Right? If you're trying to establish that you're the big bad dog in the prison yard, you don't take on the weakest actor in the prison, because that's not really sending the message that you want. You want someone with a little bit more muscle. And the idea that Afghanistan was simply too weak to get, that, sort of, re- get those reputational benefits is something that the principals in the run-up of this war or very soon after 9 11, are repeatedly emphasizing. Right? They repeatedly use terms like meager effects, narrow effects, right? don't keep this war narrow, like Afghanistan's not enough. Right? So Rumsfeld on 9 11, September 11th says we need to bomb something else. Right? They know it's Afghanistan, basically, they know the attacks of the We need to bomb something else to prove that you know, we're big and strong and not going to be pushed around. The next day, he's, he wants to signal that the global conflict would not be over with just one good blow in Afghanistan. Right? We need to do more. The next day, Wolfowitz says, let's not focus narrowly on Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Right? That's just going to produce meager effects. That's going to embolden rather than discourage regimes that we want to disc- discourage. Fight, a week after, Douglas Fight, a week after uh, 9-11. It's right? so a single-pronged attack is against the smallest state sponsor of terrorists, actually, i.e., Afghanistan. Uh, This will be a limited attack that will be perceived as a sign of weakness rather than strength. Again, this idea that what signals are we sending? Two weeks after 9-11, Rumsfeld writes to Bush, if the war war does not significantly change the world's political map, the U.S. will not achieve its aim. Think about the scale of the goals these guys are talking about. The U.S. government should envision a goal along these lines. New regimes in Afghanistan and another key state or two, that's Iraq that supports terrorism to, to strengthen political and military efforts to change policies elsewhere. That's Syria and Libya. Right? This is about as clear and unequivocal a statement of the performative war thesis as you can find. We need to take get rid of Iraq so it helps us deal with other problems elsewhere. Okay. Another objection to this Iraq argument might be, well, okay, if Afghanistan wasn't enough, that still doesn't say why Iraq, right? Couldn't you have gotten the same reputational benefits by taking on Iran or North Korea or something? Right? Uh, and my point, in, in the argument here that I make in the paper, is that there is history here and that history matters. Saddam Hussein's regime was defeated in a war by the United States in the 1990s. And the fact that his regime was still standing after that war was essentially insulting to a lot of these neocons who were very insistent throughout the 1990s that Iraq was unfinished business. Right? And it's bad enough that Saddam's regime is still standing and defiant you know, in a pre 9 11 world but in a post-911 world, that defines is totally untenable. You could not have a regime sticking around that you already defeated in war in the past. That's not, that's not what a hegemon does. A hegemon doesn't leave old debts lying around. right? So Saddam Hussein's regime, still standing post-911, was not tenable and had to be gotten rid of. Okay, second dimension, how much are reputation, status, and credibility uh, discussed by the principles, especially in private? Well, first of all, we should know that uh, there is a real intellectual history here, and neoconservatives, if there's one thing that binds them, it's this idea of credibility, right? toughness, reputation. Uh, There's a long intellectual history here. I talk in the paper of people like Irving Kristol and so on. I reference University of Chicago, and Albert Wollstetter, and all of his PhD students, and Richard Pearl, and Wolfie, all of whom studied under uh, Albert Wollstetter. But leaving all that history aside, Wolfowitz, before coming to power, uh, in 2000, writes in a foreign affairs, I say, that the Cold War was about demonstrating your friends will be protected and taken care of, that your enemies will be punished, and those who refuse refuse to support you will live to regret having done so. This is the sort of mentality that we're talking about. Uh, And even before 9-11, the people in charge in the Bush administration uh, thought about or conceived Saddam Hussein uh, through these principles, through this prism, through this framework. So in Feb 2001, one month after coming into power, Right. Remember, this is a campaign fought on like, restraint right? in the Gore versus Bush fight in 2000. The idea that Bush was the restraint uh, candidate and Gore was the warmongering candidate. Um, so one month after the victory in that campaign, uh, Donald Rumsfeld says, imagine what the region, what the Middle East would look like without Saddam. It would demonstrate what U.S. policy is all about. Right. In the summer of 2001, again, well before 9-11, he says, if Saddam's regime was ousted, you know, a major success in Iraq would enhance U.S. credibility and influence throughout the region. So this is something on their minds well before 9-11. But this rhetoric intensifies and essentially put on steroids after 9-11. Um, a, week after, a week after 9-11, Rumsfeld tells military commanders in a memo that your job is to give us opportunities to demonstrate a capability or boldness that will give pause to terrorists and those who harbor them. Bush tells Bob Woodward, Uh, Confident action will yield positive results, provides kind of a slipstream into which reluctant nations and leaders can get behind and show themselves that there has been, you know, something positive has happened towards peace. I think the election of Donald Trump has made a lot of us forget just how inarticulate George Bush was, but uh, to the extent that we can glean something from that passage, it's essentially the performative war thesis, right, that confident action will provide a slipstream behind which nations will sort of fall in line. Uh, Fayth writes to Rumsfeld in in October 2001 that dealing with Iraq would make it easier to deal with other regimes elsewhere, right, we would have sent a message. And right after the war starts, an anonymous official tells David Sanger of the New York Times that Iraq was not just about Iraq, it was of a type, i.e. we're trying to send a message. That anonymous official was in all likelihood Paul Woodford. And those were just the folks inside the administration, but there were a lot of folks around the administration who had the ear of people inside the administration, who voiced very similar logics. Bernard Lewis, who recently passed away, uh, says in a, meeting, in a meeting in the White House that Iraq needs to be liberated and Middle East nations would respect the use of force. Jonah Goldberg writes, the United States needs to go, go to war with Iraq because it needs to go to war with someone in the region and Iraq makes the most sense. The Arab world respects winners and losers. Uh, winners, and so does everybody else. Fighting and winning today means not having to fight at all tomorrow. Uh, by the way, in this, in this uh, passage uh, or in the article from which I've got this passage, Jonah Goldberg also refers to the so-called Ledeen doctrine. Some of you may have heard of this phrase, others of, other of you have not. The Ledeen doctrine says, uh, and I quote, uh, every 10 years ago, the United States needs to pick up some crappy little country and throw it up against the wall to show that we mean business. And he cited that Ledeen doctrine approvingly in making this case. Just giving you a sense of the types of people that we're talking about. Henry Kissinger says, Afghanistan wasn't enough, we need to humiliate them, them being Muslims, in order to make a point that we're not gonna live in this world that they want for us. Tom Friedman, still the foreign policy columnist for the newspaper of record in the United States, goes on Charlie Rose's show and says, we needed to go over there and take a very big stick, right in the heart of that world, what they, Muslims, needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house and saying, What part of the sentence don't you understand? Suck on this. That, Charlie, is what this war is about. Not really a WMD argument. All right, third element was there a peaceful bargain available? The reason this question matters is if you, Im- if you believe the WMD rationalist sort of Debs and Montero argument, right, the idea is that there would be a peaceful bargain available, and it's the, it's the inability to strike that bargain where reluctantly the state says, okay, I guess we'll fight, right? The commitment problem, information problem. My argument says the war will be sought for aggressively and there will be no, no real attempt at a peaceful bargain. And I think history uh, is more consistent with my story than with the Debs and Montero story. The first thing we want to note is that there may not even have been a decision for this war. Right? Uh, people senior in the administration say there wasn't even a decision that was assumed into action. But even if there was a decision, uh, it was taken pretty early on. It was, in fact, probably taken on 9-11 itself, and if not 9-11, and certainly no later by the fall of 2001, this war was inevitable, in my opinion. On 9-11, Paul Wolfowitz tells aides that he suspects Iraq is involved in the attacks. He has no evidence for this. Iraq was not involved in the attacks, as we know, but he suspects it. Rumsfeld tells his aides, best info fast, judge whether good enough to hit SEH at the same time not only Bin Laden, go massive, sweep it all up, things related and not. Fight tells a military officer who says, sir, we're working very hard in Afghanistan. He says, why are you working in Afghanistan? You, should be ought to, you, should, you ought to be working on Iraq. Again, this is on 9-11. The next day, Bush tells his counterterrorism advisor, a very famous quote, go see if Saddam is linked in any way. I just want to know, I just want to know any shred. Right. Rumsfeld says in a meeting that day, don't these attacks present an opportunity to launch against Iraq? 9-15, three days later, there's a meeting, a national security meeting, uh, in which Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz provide three targets in the war on terror in their briefing. The first is Al-Qaeda, the second is Taliban, and the third is Iraq. Right? A week after 9-11, Doug Feit writes, uh, writes a memo to Rumsfeld, you probably can't read it up there, uh, but there's two state targets in that memo. Uh, one is Afghanistan, and the second is Iraq. And it's not a sort of mindless you know, speculation. They have very specific details. Right? We should take this oil field. Right? That oil field promises Saddam this, and uh, you know, his police force here and his security services there. And you know, air power will do this, but ground power can do that. Right? A week after 9 11. In November, Bush is pressing Rumsfeld, and Rumsfeld in turn is pressing CENTCOM and Tommy Franks for war plans. In December, Rumsfeld writes to Wolfowitz, I have a feeling that we're going to have to make our case on anything we do after Afghanistan, which strongly suggests they've already decided to do something after Afghanistan. Uh, And January is when Bush makes that famous State of the Union speech, right, which for Charles Krauthammer uh, is essentially a declaration of war. Note that it's not just Charles Krauthammer who believes this, Iraqi dissident groups uh, also correctly inferred that that speech indicated war was coming. They were very excited about it. Okay, February... Uh, Even though the Afghanistan war is not over, we know that 17 years later, it's not even close to being over. Forces start moving from Afghanistan to the Gulf. In March, Bush interrupts a meeting between Condi Rice and senators and says, fuck Saddam, we're taking him out. Uh, In March 2002, uh, Cheney tells Republican senators, it's not a question of if, but when we attack Iraq. April is when Bush and Blair meet over barbecue in Crawford, Texas, and this is where British officials start panicking and start thinking, well, this war looks pretty inevitable to us. Uh, and that's the same time where you have detailed operational plans by the US military. Okay, so to summarize, I think the US fought Iraq to send a message that it was tough, that it was a hegemon, it wasn't to be messed with, and everybody better get in line. This is not the WMD argument. Um, So a couple of implications that come out of this. The first is, from the IR scholarly perspective, uh, the bargaining model is huge and is important, and I think Jim Fearon's paper probably has like 10,000 citations at this point, if I'm not even... probably more. but I don't think it explains all types of wars. Uh, I don't think it explains those wars in which you can't get from fight, you can't get from peace what you can get from fighting, like a really tough reputation. Um, and the policy implications, you know, one of the things, perhaps maybe too ambitiously, but one of the things I'm trying to do in this paper is really force. Whoops, sorry, my bad. One of the things I'm trying to do in this paper is really force a reckoning with uh, why the U.S. fought this war uh, and. The Iraq war has had pretty serious implications. You can draw a straight line from the Iraq war to the creation of ISIS. You can draw a straight line from the Iraq war to the Syrian civil war, the interna- very internationalized Syrian civil war. Uh, and maybe we ought to know, like, why did this happen in the first place? <laughs> and uh, I just think the American body politic has done a really bad job of grappling with what happened here. It was a, very, it was a vicious, aggressive state doing a vicious, aggressive war and we should deal with that. Um, This was not a right-wing war. This was not a Republican war. The New York Times editorialized in favor of it. The Washington Post editorialized in favor of it. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, John Kerry, John Edwards all voted for this war. Um, So I really don't think this was a right-wing war. Uh, I think this was a war rooted in American nationalism and exceptionalism, the idea that the US has a birthright to go around the world telling countries what they can do uh, and establish hegemony and I think there's a problem with that anyway, I look forward to what you guys have to say
0: Okay, thanks, Essen. Um I will take down names uh, for the list and the first person uh, on the list is Liam
3: And and please speak up. Yeah. Uh, Hi, I'm uh, Liam Finn. Um, I really enjoyed your uh, talk, um, Mr. Mr. Butt. I I I really liked uh, your your thesis. I thought it was very compelling. uh, That the war was uh, the purpose of the war was uh, performative, but I think that maybe the audience that it was performative for was maybe more domestic. Can you talk about like that? Because I, I, I feel like really Bush maybe wanted to demonstrate to his, his base and to you know, America's, yeah, no one's gonna hit us and not get hit back. Um, can you talk about that?
2: I mean, that's a reasonable claim. I don't necessarily disagree with it. I think there were domestic imperatives uh, pushing the uh, Bush administration to war. Um, And I think the the midterms in 2002 were, I I think underrated in importance on this. I don't think you get this war without the previous midterms where uh, Republicans and Fox News and whatnot put a lot lot of pressure on Democrats to sort of fall in line and they did. Um, I would resist the argument that that was sort of primary, that that was sort of, uh, I I would say domestic causes were subservient to the international audience here. I mean, you have to think, I mean, there was no, I mean, yes, immediately following 9-11, there's a lot of fear and a lot of like, oh my God, America's in trouble. By mid-2002, I mean, we've already had Bush tell people to go shopping and all of this stuff, and um, America in many ways has, I don't wanna say moved on, but in mid, mid-2002 is a very different time than late 2001. Let me put it that way. I know it real, in, real, in real time, it's just six months apart, but I think America's in a very different place in the summer of 2002. And I don't think there was this big drive, even from Bush's base, to go invade Iraq. I think, I think this was a top-down war, not a bottom-up war. Um, and I think the audience was very much problematic regimes elsewhere. Well.
3: From, from a foreign policy perspective, do you think that, this, that, that the performative war, though, even uh, did its job? Because I, I would argue that um, you know, by uh, attacking Iraq is not doing anything to prevent, uh, you know, 11 towel heads from boarding planes again, it's not gonna, you know, it's not like they're like making a stand to uh, indicate to China, oh yeah, we're not gonna put up with anyone like seriously challenging us, it's like, we're not standing up for what terrorist attacks.
2: Yeah, so I think that's a great point, so I think there's a couple of ways in which, there's a couple of ways in which this sort of falls flat on his face, the first is, you know, you do this to set a reputation for toughness in Germany and look how strong you are and the Iraq was a total utter disaster, right? Even people who supported the war can agree that it's a disaster, you know, in Safran. So if you're hoping to show how strong and tough you are, you actually failed, right, because you didn't really win the war, <laughs> which is kind of the point. Uh, and then, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just think that uh, the, the, the idea that, you know, you, yeah, so I mean it could, could have worked. I think you want to think about also the target states here are primarily like the Syria and Libya types. So how much of a, c- I also think these people didn't really understand what terrorism is or where it, com- where it comes from. I think they had really bad ideas of terrorism, what like the logic of terrorism and so. Sort of, um, so I think they thought that if you take care of the top line regimes that are problematic in this region of area, this region of focus for them, uh, that the re- everything else will fall into place. I, I share your skepticism that like getting rid of Saddam is gonna do basically nothing for Islamist better, but they didn't think that.
4: Thank you, Mr. Bhatt, it was an extraordinarily educational provoking talk. I'm hoping that you'll educate me a little bit on um, if you found in your research that prison car cells and drug gangs, um, and there are actors in society who find that this tactic works for them, there must be a reason that they do it. Why doesn't your thesis, let's suppose it's true, why doesn't it work for states? Because one comment you caught my attention on was you said that the US thinks it can go around and do this to other countries. Well, in a realist world, why can't it? It's the biggest kid on the block, and why shouldn't it? So if if this works at an individual and societal level, why doesn't your thesis have positive implications at the international state-to-state level, and if not, how should states go about keeping their reputations?
2: So great question. Uh, so there's basically uh, how should I say this? There's a debate in international relations, in the international relations literature, uh by people like Yari Melo and so on, uh Dallard Press, right, about whether establishing tough reputations actually deters. Right. I'm I'm agnostic on that question, right? maybe establishing a tough reputation doesn't do anything for you, and maybe it does a lot, right? I have no strong views on that. Um, My point is they have strong views on that. As for your point about, you know, if it works at at the gang level, why doesn't it work at the state level? I'm not saying it doesn't work, right? Like, maybe it does work, but in this case, it definitely didn't because the war was screwed, like, you lost the war, right? It's like, we replay history, and, you know, the Iraq war is much easier, and there's no insurgency, and everything is fine and dandy, and, like, Maybe, you know, if you are greeted as liberators, uh, then maybe it would have worked, right? So it's not the logic per se, which is stopping it from working. I don't have strong views, maybe it is a logic per se, but the war was bungled. So it couldn't have worked in this case because it was just executed really badly.
0: Mike Dash?
5: Uh, Thanks, Uh, and thank you for a uh, very thoughtful and uh, thought-provoking presentation the room so uh, it's pretty clear that uh, there's a lot of continuing interest in this uh, question I want to ask what the performative war thesis uh, brings to the table and I guess I'm, I'm listening to the uh, to the rationale and uh, uh, agreeing you know with a, a lot of uh, the description of what's going on, but you know, also saying, this actually isn't very new uh, in the sense that uh, the basic arguments you're laying out were the arguments that were made in the run-up to the Vietnam War, yeah. and the importance of uh, uh, of credibility. And in fact, the key person who sort of bridged the gap between uh, bargaining theory, and uh, credibility and in international reputation was Thomas Schelling, yeah. um, and so I mean these, these arguments have been out there uh, for a long time. Yeah. Their pernicious effects, I yes. think, were sort of made clear, uh, you know, in Vietnam and in a lot of other uh, you know wars that ended up being fought for uh, for reputation. So. Um, what does the performative war thesis bring? Yeah. that you know, we didn't know absolutely. Uh, you know, was uh, a, a red thread running through a lot of foreign policy.
2: So, I mean, the short answer is theoretically nothing, and I'm I'm very clear about this in the paper that I'm building on whether the Vietnam War. actually cite a bunch of other people who've written, the Sino-Japanese War. Uh, the scramble for Africa, even World War One, people have talked about in these terms, and I cite all of that and say this is old news. I'm not, I'm, I say this is old news. I'm not saying anything new theoretically. What I am saying is this model also applies to Iraq, and I think, in fact, it doesn't just apply to. So I'm basically saying number one, this model applies to Iraq, and number two, the WMD argument is really wrong, and or at least wrong for now. Maybe in 20 years we uncover all sorts of documents in favor of it, but. You know, Debs and Montero, for instance, not to get hung up on their paper, you know, cite four quotes in support of their thesis. One is Bush at the State of the Union. One is uh, Colin Powell in his infamous UN speech. One is Ari Fleischer, the press secretary. And one is Condi Rice's memoirs. And I'm just like, that's not enough. <laughs> that's not enough to make this case. And uh, so I'm really trying to push. My, this paper is about the Iraq War, right? I'm not forwarding a new theory. I'm not claiming it's a new theory. I think, as you, as you totally rightly suggest, this is a long-running strand in international relations scholarship. I'm building on other people's work, and in fact, I don't even call in the paper. I don't even call it a theory. I call it a thesis or sort a of framework, precisely because I'm not. It's nothing new.
6: Francis, thank you for the presentation. I like the theory a lot, as you call it, a thesis. Um, I totally buy the story, but I have a question on the scope of the thesis. Um, I wonder whether it only applies to existing hegemons. Because I see another group of states that have, that tend to have this status anxiety are the rising powers. Yes. Um, as you define it, um, the, the, the status anxiety is the mismatch between um, a, a status that a state desires and or deserves and the, the actual status that that state enjoys. So I, I guess by definition, rising powers would fit that description, yeah. then are you applying that um, rising powers tend to be uh, more war And related to this is that uh, seeing the outcome of this war, are you implying that instead um, of seeking wars tend to be uh, counterproductive?
2: On your first question, 100%, this is in fact, a literature seeped in rising powers. In fact, everything, if the, to the extent that there is something new, it's that I'm applying it to a hegemon. The existing literature on status and, you know, Bill Wolfworth and that whole crowd focuses on rising powers. And that's where the I.I. literature is on status, right? Like rising powers want to make a name for themselves and so they fight. Uh, and what I'm trying to do this paper is saying, no, no, hang on, this applies to existing hegemons just as much as wannabe hegemons. Uh, so 100%, this applies to rising powers. Um, does that mean they are more war-prone? I don't want to make that claim. That's an empirical claim. I mean, if you run a regression and you find, like, you might find them more war prone. My guess is there's too many inter- like there's too many confounding variables to see whether rising powers are more war prone than like declining powers. Like I don't want to make a. I think that's an empirical question, so I don't know. Uh, do status-seeking wars tend to be counterproductive? Again, that's not to- a. I'm agnostic on that question. Uh, there are people interested in that question. Uh, like I said, Karen Yari, Melo. Uh, 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 Daryl Press, uh, that whole crowd, Uh, I I don't know. Maybe it is counterproductive. I know this war was counterproductive, and that's all I'm saying in this paper.
4: So, so Asin, if this war was counterproductive and we had status anxiety,
1: um,
2: why didn't we go knock over Venezuela next? Or, like, well, this one didn't work out. We gotta get our status back. Let's just keep doing it until it works.
7: Well, we had the power.
2: Good question. Um, Well, I think the the the, real—it's not a theoretical answer. The answer is domestic politics primarily. Uh, It's also hard to fight. I mean, we know the U.S. is hegemonic, but I think it's hard to fight three wars in different parts of the world. Maybe America can manage it. Uh, I don't know. I feel like—I mean, there's an obvious answer to that question, right? Which is obviously they're not gonna—they're not gonna do that. But yeah, it's—it's a provocative. I see what you're saying, right? Like. Right, which is why, by the way, one of the reasons I don't call it a theory is because then I stand up having, having predictions because the pre- theory has predictions. The theory has an independent variable, a dependent variable, and predictions. That's why I'm very careful to say this is not a theory. This is a thesis and a framework, and that's how you get published. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shivaji.
0: She-
8: yeah. Thanks, uh, it was a fascinating talk. Uh, so I'm not really from international relations so outside my I'm more into comparative politics. I have two questions. One is this uh, the framework, the rationalist choice framework of Fearon and Nathan. They've applied it to civil wars, which I study also later on in 2004. APR paper. Uh, if you, what, so, is <laughs> your. Sorry, could you speak sorry. up? Yeah, what? sure. Yeah. So, uh, so how does your theory of certain actors, whether they are status conscious and rising powers or the great power or the super superpower, square with uh, Jim Fearon's uh, theory of rational choice and other scholars? What's, uh, what's similar and different between them? If you bring in the idea of uh, states or actors at the top level uh, having certain kinds of motivations, does this model therefore have to change or can Fearon's model incorporate it automatically by saying like, look, here's a, the preference functions of these actors are different. And secondly, how does this your theory apply to internal wars, or civil wars within countries, not just like wars of conquest where the U.S. or the U.S.S.R. goes into another country, yeah. but within states, which is the majority of uh, civil wars? So within Iraq, the Iraqi state is fighting the Kurds, or within Pakistan, the <coughs> Pakistani state is. How does it apply in terms of motivations of actors? Yeah.
2: So uh, on the first, is this? Can you square this with the rationalist framework? I think you cannot. I think there have been game theorists, and so people like Barbara Walter, Monica Toft, uh, uh, there's been a couple of recent papers in in SS World Politics uh, that sort of try and say, look, reputation or honor or credibility can be subsumed into a rationalist framework, and I would encourage you to go read those papers. Mm -hmm. The issue I have with that sort of pocket of the literature is that um, the target, can still avoid the war by giving up something. And I think this is really important, right? So even in honor-based, credibility-based, reputation-based wars, uh, according to that literature, the target can avoid it by saying, here's some honorable symbolic thing. In my framework, war is not avoidable by the target, right? My opinion, Saddam Hussein could have given the American ambassador in Baghdad, the heads of Uday and Qusay on a platter, and it wouldn't have stopped that war. There was nothing getting in the way of that war. And I think you can't square that with the rationalist framework. In the rationalist framework, there's always a peaceful solution, even with preferences, different preference functions. There's always a peaceful solution short of war available. And I think that's the primary difference. Uh, how does my argument apply to internal wars? Uh, there's a uh, so the two scholars I just mentioned, Monica Toff, Barbara Walter, have actually written books and made entire sort of research agendas are the idea that separatist wars are a function of reputation-based concerns, right? the, the idea that when states have lots and lots of ethnic groups to deter within a particular state, you might want to deal very harshly with one secessionist group because that sends a message to other potential secessionists to not even make the demand in the first place. So Monica Toff and Barbara Walter predict that heter- heterogeneous states will be more uh, conflict-prone than homogeneous states right, from the perspective of the government. In my separate work, I actually think they're wrong about that, <laughs> but that's a totally different concern. Uh, they, you can bring this into internal wars is the point. Uh, certainly separatism. Ideological wars, I think there's a less clear connection, but you can still say, you know, I want to deal with this left-wing threat today so that I don't deal with 10 left-wing threats tomorrow. You can make that claim. The gentleman in the
9: back.
4: Yeah, so thank you so much for the talk. I had two questions which are kind of like connect to each other. So one of them is whether 9-11 was the necessary trigger to the decision to invade Iraq or whether you think it would happen maybe a bit later, but would it happen otherwise or not? And the second part of the question is whether do you see subsequent administrations performing the the same performative war and specifically about the current administration and the potential war with Iran?
2: Hmm. Uh, I think 9-11 is... I feel fairly comfortable saying 9-11 was necessary. I don't want to say 100%, but I'm fairly certain 9-11 was necessary. I think these guys still wanted to fight the Iraq war, your Wolfie and Rami and Fait and so on. Uh, But I don't think they would have had the domestic political capital to just start a war with Iraq out of nowhere, right? Uh, Something something would have had to happen for them to have that opportunity. Otherwise, I I don't see it happening, right? Uh, It's a counterfactual, so it's hard to say, but I don't see it happening. the Iran case, I'm hesitant to put it in the same bucket. Um, I can see what you're saying, right? It's this defiant regime. I guess one big difference is Iran has not been defeated in a war by America, so it's very existence. I mean, I can see what you're saying actually, because Iran, the fact that it's defiant, if it wasn't defeated in a war, yes. But the fact that Iran is defiant against the U.S. is damaging to its notion of hegemony and credibility. I and I think that, and I actually think you're right that. A lot of the people who want war against Iran are being pushed by that. Uh, how, dares, how dare a regime not do what we say? Um, I don't think it's the same level though. I think there's something to be said that Iraq, Iraq lost a war and was still standing. I think that just made it really, really unpalatable to neocons in a way that Iran wasn't. And I also think the Iran war is, when we were talking at lunch today with the undergrads, like, The Iran war is my biggest fear in terms of foreign policy. I mean, you take climate change out of the the equation because that's sort of baked into the cake with Trump. But the stuff that hasn't yet happened, the Iran war is the stuff that that gives me the most fear with the Trump administration. Uh, So that's not to say that I don't think war is likely, but I'm hesitant to say that war is likely for exactly these reasons. I just don't feel comfortable making that claim. You want to push back? But,
4: I mean, Iran did humiliate the U.S. if you look back, like, in '79 and yeah. the, the hostage crisis yeah. and, and all that. So, yeah. I mean, people do remember that. Yeah, but, and it's a fair enough. It's a fair enough point. I mean, it's a fair
0: enough point. two fingers. We have a list of two fingers on that.
3: So, so would you say that uh, necessity for performative war is you have to have a trigger and then, like, a vehicle, like an
2: excuse? I wouldn't say, I don't say a vehicle or excuse is a, is a necessary condition. I mean, technically, they could have been open about this, right? right. They could—it's another question. They could have been open about it and the war still happens. I think not, but conceivably, they could have been open about it. So it's not about lying or whatever. But I do agree with your first point that there is some sort of uh, so. So Barnhart talks about she. So in her work, she has an article in 2016 and an article in 2017, and she focuses very much on this idea of a humiliating event, um, and I think humiliation uh, is what's driving this concern. So. Humiliation, narrowly, I mean, the, the more general term I use is status anxiety. That can come out of a humiliating event. It can come out of somewhere else. Uh, but, yeah, in this case, there was that trigger that meant sort of the U.S. was shaken up.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jeremy?
10: Yes. Um, the, these are, the questions here are proper for me to ask a clarifying question regarding the humiliation event because it seems to me in the performative war thesis that the humiliation event is a motive for uh, the war. Um but it, it seems like it just as easily could be in this case that uh, it's what's creating the opportunity to, to go to war because you have a lot of motives that precede 9-11. And the fact that, as you say, you know, that they came, they settled on Iraq, you know, really quickly uh, what is indicative of that. So, how how do you disentangle yeah. right, the, the motive of the demonstration effect from the motives that precede, right, given that it could just be some sort of opportunity condition. Yes. And and just lastly relating this to the the, the example maybe of the, the the prison gangs that you talked about, because it, it doesn't seem like to go out and, and uh need a demonstration effect that you need a humiliation event. You know, you're you're in prison yeah. and prison is threatening enough. You don't need to be humiliated uh, yeah. in order to go out and uh, and make an example of somebody. So I was curious what you'd say to that.
2: So a great point in the first one. that's a very yeah, that's a great point. Like, was it all a ruse, basically? Like, was it just an opportunity? In it? So the performative war thesis still works, but they, they wanted to send a message, and 9-11 gave them the opportunity. To other, I think that's a, that's consistent with the evidence. Uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't know what to say other than that's consistent with the evidence. I don't think, yeah. I, I think it's totally reasonable to to claim that. Uh, and in fact, a lot of people do say that 9-11 was just an excuse for these folks. Uh, so you're, you're not coming out of left field on that. Uh, on the prison gangs, I mean, it's not a humiliating event per se, and this is why I say sort of status anxiety rather than humiliation. Humiliation is one sort of manifestation of status anxiety, but it's not sort of status anxiety writ large. So in prison, for instance, you know, they found that where there's more turnover of inmates, there'll be more violence. And so the idea there is that you get new cellmates, and so now you have to establish a new reputation. So the anxiety doesn't necessarily come from, humil- doesn't necessarily come from humiliation. The anxiety can come from, oh, I, need, I have a point to prove right now, given structural conditions. Right, so it's, it's, a, it's a large, it's a sort of, uh, that's what I would say.
7: Um, yeah, so I just had a question. So I know that it's most likely that there weren't any WMDs, as you were just saying, and it's most likely that they weren't a threat to the US at the time as well. Um, and I, I guess my question is, with regards to the ends justifying the means, could you maybe make the argument that the even though they entered probably as, as you were mentioning Machiavelli, in a way that just appeared good to know bad, to know good, and to appear good. Um, they used it as just a way to take out Saddam's uh, regime, to like prevent it from spreading. Could um, you also say that maybe one of the reasons that so many people would consider the Afghan War to be such a colossal failure uh, was because they pulled out funding and troops in the first place? Uh, and which eventually led to this vacuum where Iran came in politically, and then uh, ISIS came in more uh, security to fill in kind of like the security uh, area in Iraq. So essentially in saying that the ends justify the means and that the U.S., while they were in Iraq, actually led it to have a, a more democratic new elections, and there wasn't, there wasn't nearly as much violence, and preventing a tyranny from raiding is still better than uh, leaving and then just allowing new forms of uh, threats to, or new forms of regimes to threats to enter regime.
2: So if I understand your question correctly, uh, are you, you're asking not about the initial war, but about staying once the war has already happened. Is that the idea? Uh, so I mean, I don't have strong, I mean, I don't have strong, I don't have strong feelings on you know, when or should or if the US should have left or when it should have left or if it should have left or the surge, or I don't have strong feelings on any of that. Uh, you know, if you want to make the claim that staying in Iraq helped them establish a democracy, sure, I, I mean, I don't, I'm agnostic on that question, right? Uh, as for the reason for the Afghan war failure, uh, I think the Iraq war is one of them. I don't think it's the only reason, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think Pakistan support for the Taliban. I think the corruption of the Afghan government. I mean, Hamid Karzai's brother was basically, I mean, he was getting bags of CIA cash to like run, like you know, uh, this corrupt drug running empire, uh, properties and bank accounts in Dubai. There's Hamid Karzai's brother. So, um, warlords being financed by the CIA. So, I mean, the Afghan war. Uh, uh, has a lot of, the failure of the Afghan war I think has a lot of roots. I think the Iraq war is an important one. Uh, I don't think it's the only one.
11: <clears throat> Thank you for coming. Um, and the first slide, you kind of wrote, wrote off democracy as a reason for the war. Um, would you entertain a scenario in which, you know, oftentimes when democracy is used as the excuse, it's so people have this kind of Wilsonian self-determination, self-expression, the right to vote, etc. cetera. Um, would you entertain the idea that it was for democracy because of the democratic peace theory and that the United States was coming off this age of prosperity and, and um, you know, was a sole hegemon in, in the 1990s. It showed that it was vulnerable in 2001 and 9-11. And that you know, this was before the, the, kind of the world shift away from democracy started. And they looked at the Middle East and said, this is a region in which you know, uh, t- like tyranny reigns and there are uh, dictators. And so Iraq was kind of the prime example of um,
2: what can happen when uh, you don't have democracy? Uh, no, I don't. I, so, I mean, no. I guess my answer to you is no. Uh, I don't think democracy was what was motivating these people. I think they often indicated and sort of hand waved a democracy democratic peace theory. I don't think that's what was motiv- motivating them. First of all, neocons' favorite regimes in the Middle East are Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Which tells me that they don't exactly have a love affair with democracy, and they don't really have a problem with autocracy. Uh, it's just, are the autocrats Israel's friends or not? I think that's the real question. Um, and in Iraq's case, they were not. Uh, as for you know, tyranny—that indi- being a prime example—I I don't. I mean, why is Iraq the prime example? Why isn't why isn't Saudi Arabia or Egypt the prime example of tyranny in the Middle East? The idea that these neocons who have zero concern for Muslim and Look at the way they talk about Muslims and Arabs. Like, look at the language. They don't care about Muslims and Arabs. They don't care about their well-being. They don't care, like, that's not why this war was fought, in my opinion. Um, I don't think they really care about democracy. I think, and, and I think the root, like, the, the jig is up. I mean, we've seen in the 15 years since, you know, the neocons, like, the foundation for the defense of democracies, which has defense of democracies in the name, Right, uh, is basically a new convention which has come out in support, you know, of Sisi's regime and Saudi Arabia. You know, so like, these are not democracy-loving folks. And uh, I think that was a very convenient argument, especially for think tanks and sort of op-ed writers and you know people like in this room who you know write for journals and the Washington Quarterly and Foreign Affairs, because exactly, democratic peace is an IR idea and. The match between democratic peace theory and the real world—it just gets IR scholars going. Uh, but I don't think it's what I don't think it's what these guys I don't think it's what these guys were interested in. I could just yeah, start. yeah, please,
11: please. Um, so two things. The first being, I would say Iraq would be the prime example because of you know you have during the Iran-Iraq War them using chemical weapons against their own people, showing <laughs> they committed a genocide against the Kurdish minority. Um, whereas that's you know not as obvious or prevalent in Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. And the second thing, um, with respect to the point of kind of, you know, American officials not caring about foreign citizens, that might be true, it's not worth arguing. I would say that there is, there is sort of something to be said for America's rules of engagement when going into these foreign countries and how how it views its own military actions in these countries. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the strict rules of engagement for U.S. troops abroad.
2: I don't see what that has to do with the paper uh, or the argument. No, that, that was just a follow-up. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I mean, the rules of engagement as they are, but I mean, let's let's not forget the U.S. has bombed weddings. The U.S. has droned funerals. The U.S. has, uh, I mean, let's not, let's not make the U.S. ventures in Iraq and Afghanistan turn out to not look to be like some sort of walk in the park. These are nasty wars. Uh, the rules of engagement might be the, as as they are but that doesn't mean really nasty things haven't been done by american forces so uh i leave that aside as for you know kurdish kurdish genocide and i mean sure if you think that i mean that's not why the, these people don't care about the kurds like the, like if i've read the documents they're not saying oh my god the poor kurds were killed in 1992 like let's not do that again like I mean, I've read the document. Let me just put it that way. I've read what these people were saying to each other, and they're not talking about democracy, and they're not talking about the Kurds. They're saying the things that I said that they're saying.
9: Finger, yeah. Yeah, just to follow up, um, so I, I kind of uh, following up on what he said that, I think your argument against the democracies is that we don't care about the people, like that we don't care that they have democracy, um, because we don't care about Arabs, or we don't care about Muslims, and I think that even though that might be valid, that looking throughout history, the when the US is democracy spreading or trying to instill our values, it's not about caring about the people. It's about getting like asserting US interests and having um, regimes or governments that we feel will be more friendly towards our leaders. So I think that like saying, Oh, it's not democracy because we don't care about the people isn't a fully qualifying answer. Yeah. And kind of just like on that point, and you're I know that what well, was in the focus of your presentation and in the paper it says like, oh, it's not democracy spreading because they didn't care about democracy; they just wanted stability. Um, so, but I think that if you look and the whole like it's a thesis, not a theory, kind of leads me to go, well, there should be a theory, and one theory that does exist is like the democracy spreading, and there are other cases, and it could be that it's not because we care about the people; it's because we care about the country agreeing with us, the regime type
2: so i think first of just based on what you're, i think we are we're basically in agreement that the us likes democracy when the democrats support them right so that's not an argument for democracy right? that's an argument for cold like cold geopolitical interest uh which i think is what this war was about the other thing about democratic peace theory is you know i should mention this was not this was not referenced either in private or even public by bush administration officials until basically the war was already underway like Feb, March, 2003 is when these guys suddenly realized, oh, we should probably dress this up as a you know, democracy promoting venture. But as I said, the war was decided well before then, um, and they never really talked about democracy. So if democracy was doing the democratic peace theory was what was driving them, they did a really good job of hiding it, because they didn't say it in public, and they didn't say it in private. So like I think that matters. Uh, yeah. Uh, second.
5: Uh, Mr. Butt, thank you for uh, talking to us, by the way. Uh, as someone born in 97, it's kind of hard to work out Iraq. But um, my question for you is, uh, it's kind of the same question worded in two ways. Uh, could we have prevented this? And then who is to blame? Because uh, like you said, there was a lot of support within the administration. Uh, there was support on both sides of the aisle in Congress. So do you think it would have been different if someone else was sitting in the White House? at time?
2: Great question. Let me say a couple of things about that. Uh, the conventional wisdom, especially on the left, is that Al Gore would not have gone into Iraq. I used to believe that until I did research for this paper. There's a great book by a guy called uh, something Harvey, Frank, Frank Harvey. Looks like Eugene has read that book. <laughs> and uh, the book basically makes a count- like says, this is what a counterfactual world with Al Gore as president but everything else stays the same. Republicans still control Congress, which they did, right? 9-11 still happens, which it happened, right? Everything else stays the same, you just switch the White House. And that guy makes a pretty persuasive case that Al Gore would have gone into Iraq. His point is the following. Number one, throughout the 90s, and even before 9-11, Al Gore was more hawkish on Iraq than the principals, or as, I would say as hawkish on Iraq as the principals in the Bush administration, so your Cheney, Rami, Wolfie, so on. Uh, And the second point is, look, even if his first instinct was not to go to war, the Republican Congress post 9-11 would have said, you weakling, you weakling, you weakling, Fox News would have had him on, like sort of people calling him a weakling every day, and he would have gone to war, not for performative war, but maybe for domestic political reasons. So I don't think Al Gore, putting Al Gore in the White House stops this, I don't feel comfortable saying Al Gore stops this war. The interesting thing, and this is a, this is a real counterfactual. So in, the, in, the, in my investigation for the paper, I spoke to a number of people, uh, intelligence folks, State Department folks, IAEA folks, and so on. Right? I think it was State Department, no, it, yeah, it was one of the State Department, the INR. So one of the people from the INR, the State Department Intelligence Agency, uh, that raised a very interesting counterfactual for me, which is, what happens if Colin Powell resigns? It was Colin Powell. I think is the one guy who maybe, maybe, maybe could have stopped that war. I don't think it was in his disposition because he's an army man, and in the you do what you know, you make your case, and then when the decision comes this way, you, you, you say, "All right, I'm going to fall in line." Right? That's that's what an army man does, and that's what he did. Uh, I think it's an interesting question of history to say what happens if in Feb 2003, instead of giving that ridiculous speech at the UN, Colin Powell says, "I'm not going to give the speech." Because I'm smart enough to know it's full of BS and I resign based on principle. And he writes a letter to the New York Times saying so. I think that might have stopped the war.
0: Does that imply that it's his fault? No, not his fault,
2: not at all. Not the fault, the I mean, if you're gonna blame people, it's, I mean, it's the government. I mean, it's primarily the government. Uh, all the other actors supported a decision once it was already in play uh, and this is what my argument against the Israel lobby is, you know, the Israel lobby did not cause the war, they helped push for it once it was decided, but you don't need the Israel lobby to fight this war, this war happens without them. Right? Depending on how you could, is Wolfowitz part of the, like, we're well, not gonna get into that, but like, if he's part of the government, I'm not really considering him part of the lobby per se, like he's in the government already, so. Jonathan, uh, back to
0: questions.
2: Thank you, thanks for a really engaging presentation. And it left me wondering,
5: not just about why the US went, to war in 2003, but how we conducted the war. I wonder what the performative war thesis said about that. But to extend your metaphor, right? if you wanna show your status in a prison, you don't just beat someone up, you don't just break their nose, you thrash them, you yeah. send them to the hospital ward. Yeah. So was, could you extend your insights to say something about intensity, timing, lethality, nastiness of war, and did you see any evidence of that?
2: That's a great question. I didn't really look for evidence, so I didn't find any, but I think it, you're, you're absolutely right that the observable implications of this argument is that even the how should it be affected, not just the why. I think the, the rhetoric, the discourse, shock and awe, right, I, I think that is sort of, kind of sort of what you're saying, right, that we're gonna, we're gonna show everyone the quick and decisive victory. Rumsfeld loved his new toys, like this whole revolution in military affairs that people talk about. Uh, I think Rumsfeld really wanted to show just how big and strong and lethal and quick and nimble the US military was and could be. Um, as far as intensity, and lethality, I mean, it goes back to this point. I mean, there's certain rules of engagement, right? Like, you can't murder every man and enslave, you know, enslave all the survivors and rape all the women anymore. Like, it's 2018 or 2003. You can't do that. But, uh, to the yeah, within, within the confines of these rules of engagement, I think they want it to be as tough and aggressive as possible. Yeah. Hi, thanks for your
4: talk. I didn't get the chance to read the paper, but... Um, my question is I'm asking what is what was what was the motive of this performance because if we look at where this cabal of middle eastern terrorists came from it's Saudi Arabia mostly and what is the US proving by thrashing Iraq and doing not, and selling weapons to Saudi Arabia <laughs> and continuing to buy Saudi oil yeah, yeah. I mean how, how does your thesis explain the fact that really in in some ways One of the biggest purveyors of an ideology that led to this attack, you know, Wahhabism, um, is continuing to do that in the world. And in fact, reaching out to the other US ally in the region, Israel, which is also one of Osama bin Laden's motivations. If you read his messages to the world, he talks about Israel's treatment of the Palestinians. Yes. So that's my question.
2: Yeah. uh, So, I mean, the way I would answer it is, you know, I think these these folks had a really bad theory of terrorism. I think they had a really bad understanding of what where terrorism comes from. So in their minds, if you take care of regimes that don't like the U.S., like in, let me put it this way, in their minds, terrorism comes is rooted in regimes that don't like the U.S. and sort of stand up to the U.S. Right? Uh, you're totally right that, <laughs> like, you know, an IR scholar, or like policy person, whatever, can look out in the world and say, you know. Uh, a lot of the stuff comes from Saudi Arabia, the ideo- ideology, you're totally right, the uh, financing of madrasas everywhere from Pakistan to Yemen. Like, like, uh, so I think if you ask an IR scholar, hey, where does terrorism come from, you get one set of answers, I think sort of where you're coming from, and I think if you ask these folks, hey, where does terrorism come from, they'll give you a very different and I suspect wrong answer, but the implications of that answer is if you buy that story of where terrorism comes from, then this war makes sense, right? I think you and I don't buy their version of where terrorism comes from, but I think that's a second-order sort of question.
4: Really don't think it went through their heads, like the whole world knows it came from Saudi Arabia. I mean, at least yeah, maybe you could say.
2: So I think they think, they, they think oh, these ha- people happen to be Saudis, but that doesn't mean Saudi Arabia is responsible. I think, oh, I think they thought, oh, look, this comes from so-called failed states and Afghanistan's collapsed. And so, yes, the nationals are Saudis, but really this is an Afghanistan-weak state.
1: Is that an alternative theory of the war then? So it wasn't actually status and prestige, it was a faulty theory about how terrorism worked. They had a bad cognitive model. Is that, are you presenting like your theory, theory B, theory D, theory four?
2: No, uh, unless I'm not understanding you, I think it's consistent with my argument because the idea is that having a tough reputation that signals to other state sponsors of terror So so I think we agree that terrorism doesn't come necessarily from state sponsors of terror, right? Uh, But if you believe that terrorism comes from state sponsors of terror, and so they primarily mean Syria and uh, uh, Libya, uh, and Iraq, obviously, and then Iran. Uh, If you believe that's where terrorism comes from, the idea is, you know, you send a message to Iraq, and then Iran, Syria, and Libya are going to take care of themselves, right? You've shown how tough and strong you are. Don't mess with us. Take care of your problems, right? Tom Friedman. If they needed to see American boys and girls go from house to house, right? Uh, so I don't think it's an alternative argument. I think it's consistent with my argument unless I'm missing something. I mean, it could be. Someone
1: also mentioned democracy. So there could just be a faulty theory about how everything kind of impacted And there's terrorism and democracy is and we have to do something. Yep. And that seems different than we have to prove to the world that we're still strong after 9-11. But I understand how they could have got it in your head. I also have a one-finger
0: it was a true two-finger, so you do not get
1: banished.
5: To the uh, um, another quote, set of quotes I remember during the time that Bush said is, if there's going to be a fight, we're not going to play defense against the next terrorist attack. We're going to take it there and make them feel the pain on their own territory. Couldn't you argue that the deterrence was successful? Because we haven't had another major terrorist attack on the large-scale side of 9 Most Americans, frankly, don't care who's dying in the Middle East. They care, though, if we're getting people killed here. Yep. And yep. ISIS attacked Europe, and they've attacked other places, but they haven't. I'm here, so couldn't you say deterrence did work? We haven't had
2: another attack? I can try. So I'll say a couple of things about that. Uh, Well, there have definitely been a lot of attempts. Let me put it that way, first of all. Uh, I think to the the extent that the US has been uh, inoculated from Middle Eastern terror, maybe not other types of terror, uh, but Middle Eastern origin terror, It could be a function of defensive actions. I mean, this idea that you take the offense to terrorism, I mean, from an IR, I mean, to me, it doesn't make that much sense. I mean, by definition, you sort of have to be reactive. I I don't know how you take the offense to, like, terrorists. You can take the offense to states, but I don't know how you can take the offense to terrorist networks, per se. Um, You know, Iraq had basically no relationship with Islamist terrorism uh, in in the early 2000s, right? There were some, you know, uh, like when you talk about the Al-Qaida's and so on in the world, these are not Saddam Hussein's friends. So the idea that hitting Saddam Hussein is going to stop Islamist terror, I think is flawed logic, Uh, Islamist terror may have been stopped for any number of other reasons, you know, better scrutiny of visas, more border security, so on and so forth, like defensive measures. Policing, intelligence, uh, but I'm not sure that uh, attacking Saddam Hussein really deters Islamist terror. In fact, to the to the contrary, I mean, I think it's easy to forget it now. It's ten years since then, but in the mid 2000s, I mean, there was an awful lot of Islamist terror that comes out of the fact that Iraq has been attacked. Like Iraq is like mired in the Shia-Sunni civil war, and it's like mosques are being bombed every day, and uh, so, if anything, I think taking the fight to Iraq at least temporarily, if not permanently at least temporarily increased the terrorism threat that the u s faced and certainly, I think the level of anger uh that the u s had against it in the Muslim and Arab world as a result of this war, like if you think you know uh when you talk about you know the backlash or uh, uh you know blowback i guess uh if you if you buy the blowback thesis, then this was a precisely op, the wrong thing to do. Right? You don't want to give people an, a, like you don't want to give people a reason to be angry. Like you want to be nice rather than nasty. So, uh, no, I think I think I think you're putting two and two and getting five in that case. Like just because there hasn't been a major attack doesn't mean that the Iraq War worked. Is what I would say.
0: Your turn again. Oh. And, uh, I'm David Gibson, sociology. I have an arcane
1: methodology question. Uh, I'm interested in, I came here in part to find out how we know what, what a person's motives are without giving them sodium kind pentothal of and starting them. And I'm really interested in your use of, of linguistic data. So you were dismissive about Bush's explanation that was about the UMD. And that was too public. And you're dismissive about democracy because that post the work to find very I'm kind of curious about. Your methodological, you know, premises. So how, what do you trust by way of talk, and when is talk adequately backstage that you think it's genuine talk? And how do you know about genuine talk? You mentioned reading documents about what they said. Now, I'm addicted to presidential recordings, and so I have high standards about what actually counts as yeah. insider talk. Yeah. Which is not a fair, you know, standard to apply to this case. But I'm wondering, like, how do you weigh talk and, and judge its, its reliability?
2: Yeah, I think this is a great, great, great question. I don't think there's an easy answer for that. I think these are. Things that all scholars struggle, all qualitative historical, sort of archive based scholars struggle with. Uh, I think there's some obvious distinctions. Like, if you're saying stuff in a speech, like, we know that the public, if you're saying stuff in a microphone to CNN, right, uh, I'm not going to trust that, right? Uh, Pretty much everything I've cited here is in internal meetings that was not public to anybody until much later. Some of these documents are Rumsfeld snowflakes. I don't know what the official term is, but he called them uh, memos. So Rumsfeld had these sort of internal one sentence memos that he would sort of send around. He called them snowflakes, Uh, though they were recently released. Uh, There was another set of documents by the National Security Archives, the GW, uh, that looked at the run-up to the Iraq war from 1997 to 2004, again, all internal deliberations, running from the Clinton administration to the Bush administration, again, all internal. and your question is, you know, how backstage do you have to be to be backstage? Like, the one thing I'd say in this paper, like, I try and be, you know, a little bit, you know, you know, what I say in the paper is, you know, maybe in the future we uncover more evidence for the WMD argument. So I'm not saying that it's never going to be found to be true. What I am saying is, right now, the folks making that argument haven't done the hard work that I've done. They've just looked at Condi Rice's memoirs and Ari Fleischer's press conferences and said, look, and I'm like, no, that's not good enough. I'm sorry, that's just like not even close. So uh, private versus public is a big thing, and obviously before the war is a big thing. Um, yeah, that's what it.
1: even the <laughs> even even the well, private ones, they have an audience still. Now they're looking at um, uh, minutes, NSC minutes. Yeah. And the minutes often bear a little resemblance to the original talk. And yeah. so they were written with some audience members in mind. So yes. even they're not really, it isn't like, you know, um, Rumsfeld's private
2: diary or whoever you mentioned. Yeah. So, so I think minutes, so minutes of me, so these are not necessarily minutes of me. These, a lot of these are memos and letters. And a lot of these are memos, like, from Rummy to Wolfie, from Fife to, Rumi, like, the audience is one. Yeah, the audience is one human being. Like, no one else is reading, now they are. But at the time, only one person is reading them. So I think, let me put it this way. I'm. I have more confidence in my sources than their sources. If they find my type of sources to make the WMD claim, you know, I'm much more likely to believe it. But right now, they've given us nothing. That's all I'm saying.
0: Um, so I'm going to use the chair's prerogative and ask a follow-up. Yes, please. Is, um, so is it fair then to say that you're, that you're taking these internal discussions at face value for the most part? And then relatedly, I was wondering, how, how conscious and deliberative is the performative aspect of the decision making in the sense that, do they know that's why they're doing it? Or is this <laughs> something that they sort of have internalized in some way? Yeah. Right? Um, so I'd be curious your thoughts about that.
2: Yeah, to an extent I am taking it at face value, not, I mean, not 100%, but I'm just much more likely to believe stuff that's said in private that's not meant for other other actors. So. Yeah, in a way, I am taking it at face value. Maybe problematically, but I am. Uh, how conscious were they? Did they know what they were doing? Uh, I don't think they would term it the performative war thesis. They would, they would term it in terms of credibility. Yeah. So, I think, yeah, I think they thought they were fighting the war to show American credibility and toughness. They wouldn't term it this way. Right.
0: How aware were they of the humiliation? So those things that, you know, you make the case that this is an instrumental um, argument, not just sort of an emotional argument, but, yeah, the humiliation does seem to play a role, and I'm wondering, you know, is that something that they're sort of like, well, now that we have been challenged, I, mean, I suppose some of your quotes say things to that effect.
2: Yeah, so like, um, you know, Rumsfeld's something like, uh, I think the first Rumsfeld quote there is pretty, pretty strong, right? Uh, we need to bomb something else to prove that, you know, we're being in, and this is not 9-11, mm-hmm. right? So they wouldn't term it a humiliation, right? Yeah. I'm terming it a humiliation. They would term it as a shock to the system. Uh, right? We're not going to be pushed around by these kinds of attacks, right? So it's a shock to the system, and we want to show, right, that we are not the type of actor that's going to be, like, pushed. We are much tougher than you think we are, and we are not going to show it, I guess is how I would say it.
9: Yeah, thank you again for your talk. Um, we mentioned Iran earlier. Um, but do you believe your performative war thesis explains US foreign policy today? Um, I think we can agree that President Trump is largely concerned with reputation. So do you think, um, like with regards to China, or North Korea, or Russia, do we expect some sort of war or aggression because um, using
0: this
2: thesis? I mean, expect is a strong word, but I certainly fear it. Uh, I think, like I said earlier, you know, I think it's uh, of all the blunders that Trump could pull, this is the, probably the biggest one. Uh, uh, most likely, sort of the combination of biggest and most likely. Um, I mean, somebody else uh, uh, earlier asked a so similar similar question. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess you could make the case that you know, with the so you know, the humiliation of seventy nine and you know, the hostage crisis, that you know, some people haven't gotten over the fact that this is a defiant regime. Uh, I think that's why a lot of the neocons sort of still want to fight Iraq, but uh, Iran. But I think. One thing that really worries me about the Iran War, potential Iran war, is that it's not just the neocons who want to do it. Right? I live just outside Washington, DC. Uh they're ready to go. <laughs> like there is a real audio, there is a real uh how should I say like there is a real push, a real sort of agenda here uh that that is that would be happy with the war in Iran. And so the reason I think like, this is scarier or more likely than. All the other things Trump can do is because on this one it's not just Trump, right? It's Trump's cabinet officials, it's the sort of foreign policy establishment in, in Washington D.C., both right of center and left of center to the extent that there is a left of center foreign policy establishment. Uh, so the Iran war is or potential Iran war is one of those things where I think a lot of people would have different reasons. Like some people say the deal was una- a deal, didn't work, and you know some people have this maybe performative humiliation idea, some like. So some of you may have a terrorism, Syria civil war idea. So I think Iran is one of those re, uh, situations where you might get a war for very different reasons because of a lot of different sort of uh, uh, yeah, a lot of different principles.
9: I was just going in with that yeah. too. Do you think that there would be any pushback of like learning from the <coughs> Iraq failures in the sense of like, we talked about like, do status seeking war serve to be counterproductive in the end? Do you think that would have any influence of like learning from past mistakes?
2: How can you learn when you don't even know what happened? I mean one of the issues that I, one of the issues that I had one of the reasons I wrote this paper is because like at least in the IR world I don't want to say too much about the policy world although I feel anyway at least in the IR world like there has been no acknowledgement of what the hell even happened like these guys lied their way into war in a so-called liberal democracy against a state that did not threaten or attack them and everyone's just kind of forgotten about it <laughs> like oh i guess like no like montero and debs in io are saying that it was really fought for wmd and they're saying this 11 years after the war and i'm like are you kidding me like for real uh so um for me you can't learn from the failure until you acknowledge it and one of the things i'm trying to do in this paper is force a reckoning if, i don't know how many people read security studies in their spare time but uh <laughs> we <do>. yeah like <laughs> at, le- at least three people in this room do so that's a start, but I think they're already on my side, so I don't know if that really helps. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't think the U.S. body politic, political elites, have really uh, dealt with dealt with this war. I mean, you see it in the treatment of George Bush and his administration. Now suddenly he's like, he's passing candy to Michelle Obama, and we're supposed to respect that. Like, like what? Like, don't you remember what he did? Uh, and now he's like the solid citizen, and we're supposed to. Like
0: Zoe. Hi. Um, thank you for coming and speaking
9: here today, it's been very informative. Uh, I was curious if uh, you think there is a substantial difference between hegemonic uh, status anxiety and uh, bipolar status anxiety because you briefly mentioned the uh, Cold War and it seems like um, the proxy wars started in the Cold War were mostly prized upon the fact that um, they simply had a different affiliation, but it seems like with hegemonic uh, status anxiety, you emphasize that um, it's more about humiliation and the fact that the hegemon has to regain something that they feel they lost.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, For the purposes of the argument in the paper, I'm agnostic on sort of, You know, as I said said to Francis, you can just as easily imagine a rising power doing this as a declining power or a self-perceived declining power. Um, And I think, you know, Mike Desh raised a point about uh, uh, the Vietnam War fought for very similar reasons. So I think notions of credibility are maybe as, if not more important in a a bipolar world as in a unipolar world. Uh, So I don't have strong feelings on that, is is what I would say. Uh, I think it's totally conceivable and plausible that this happens as, if not more, in a bipolar world. Great,
0: thank you so much, and let's all, uh, you know, join me in thanking Essen for coming.
10: If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.